can't believe it. We're already doing, what is it, episode 22 today? 22. <sighs> Insane. Uh, first of all, I want to welcome my uh, my co-host, the, the man himself, Cato. Cato, how's it going, Kato. bro? Cato is Kato. doing better this time. Yeah, Cato. Fred, how are you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing great. Man, Fred did so good in the last one that we decided to bring him back. We paid him in a little extra this time. Uh, I'm always <laughs> I'm always up for long-winded political discussion. <laughs> well, you're you've got a home right here. Anyhow, folks, this is Wise Guy Talks. Thanks for listening to us. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm back with you. This is the Wise Guy. Wise Guy Talks. Um, yeah, we th- we decided on today's uh, subject. You're already breathing hard over there, Nate uh, Cato, just to make me mad. I know you are. I can hear it. You, I want to get you so bad. Anyhow, the name of this show is going to be Sins of the Father. Sins of the Father is kind of a, a complicated issue. We did a, uh, at the beginning of the show, we kind of talked about how far we wanted to go into it. I think the format's going to be, historically, we'll talk about Sins of the Father, defamation of blood, corruption of blood, and forfeiture of Sins of the Father as we already alluded to, and then how that uh, pertains to uh, punishment of treason and bill of a tender. So the reason we have Fred the man on here, give us a, a brief historical perspective of where I'm coming from when I'm talking about bill of a tender, punishment of treason, defamation of blood. It's all yours. Well, that's an incredibly, that's a great topic for a long-winded discussion. But uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as I can. One of the principal issues that caused a lot of the bloodshed in England, um, be, beginning in the mid-Middle Ages and, and going right on through the, um, the Reformation, was the issue of corruption of blood. Because the, the reason why that was such an enormous issue for the English nobility is because the basically there were there were only two classes of landholders in in uh, the medieval Britain, and that was the nobility and the church. If you were found guilty of treason, which was the attainder part, then the next issue was usually a what they determined corruption of blood, which meant that you could no longer pass lands to your heirs, and essentially your lands were either forfeited to the king or somebody else. And that became a huge issue. In fact, that was one of the principal issues that was discussed in the Magna Carta. So how, how do you think they came by the whole idea of corruption of blood, like your, your blood, your family? I mean, is that what they meant by that? Well, the whole concept of blood libel is extremely old in Europe. And a lot of people refer to it now in the context of anti-Semitism on the idea that... Um, you know, that there is some evil that, that transmits genetically, if you will, and therefore if this a single member of a family is guilty, then the entire member of the family must also be guilty and are deserving of punishment. So that's a concept that goes back through um, European law very, very back into, into history. But the reason why it was specifically... Um, you know, specifically disclaimed or outlawed in the U.S. Constitution is because the Constitution is drawn almost exclusively from what the framers saw as the failings of English law. And clearly one of the issues that had been enormous in English law 
throughout the Middle Ages and again, all the way through the Renaissance period was this concept that other family members could be held equally liable or equally guilty when a single wrongdoer was in the family. What, what do you think the, the impetus behind that was? I mean, why would you, anybody in their right mind, it just seems so anathema to what we do as a society now. Generally speaking, I know there are actually some exceptions we'll talk about, but what, what, what do you think the reasoning was? Was it just straight up greed to take another person's land generationally? Um, the short answer is yes. I mean, you have to go back and look at the history of England and the way it kind of developed through different conquests. And uh, one of the key drivers of the entirety of all the bloodshed that occurs in England, you know, through the war, of the, Ro the wars of the roses, and even through the reformation, the Commonwealth was the issue of landholding and the inability to gain landholding. In fact, if you look at the mass waves of migration that occur first from English Scottish settlers here to the United States. That was driven in large part by availability of land that would simply have been unavailable for private ownership right. in England because of the remnants of the feudal system. So I, I want to make sure that we do not confuse there are two issues here that I initially kind of confused and that was blood liable and a defamation of blood. They do kind of touch historically way, way back, kind of coming from the same idea. Is that correct? Well, I just want to jump in. Blood, blood libel is a whole totally no, different No, I understand concept. that. Yeah. But don't they kind of cross paths? No, they don't. At all? No. Blood libel deals with the Jews, and that's totally is unrelated to the... But blood libel existed before? No. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with corruption of the blood. No, that's the point that I'm trying to make. I'm yeah. just saying that they kind so, of touch paths. They don't. So, because blood libel refers to rumors of Jews taking blood of Christians to do, what is it, uh, some sort of religious ceremony. So it has nothing to do with corruption of the blood. Well, I think, it, okay, so I think that we have to kind of differentiate that. That's correct. Yes. But that ultimately both come from the same genesis, which is you can basically hold entire groups, okay, whether they're religious correct. groups, whether okay. they're family groups, so yeah, be the responsible for a single bad actor. So as relate to corruption of the blood, related to, like you said, English law, how did it become about? The Magna Carta, which is 1215 AD, did not resolve that. It continued. Mm -hmm. Until modern, well, nineteenth century uh, English law actually. Uh, America has decided that we would not have corruption of the blood when the Constitution was written. Mm -hmm. But Cato, you're on your game today, buddy. Well, I'm just saying that you did your homework. I'm impressed. Yeah, but the so, sins of the father continues. Yeah, there's some really good articles uh, in the Heritage Foundation. One of them, uh, they specifically talk about Article 1, Section 9, Clause 3, Bill of Attainder, which honestly, I don't think I'd really even paid much attention to. I maybe have heard it, just didn't register with me. But I, I got to thinking, and I wondered how these things were contemporaneous, how they could be extrapolated 
down to our uh, current setting. Well, actually, a bill of attainder sure is, is, right is primarily related to modern yeah. law through the impeachment because the difference between a, a bill of attainder was that Parliament was judging the accused as guilty as opposed to a judicial process. So what you're saying is that the judiciary, uh, I'm sorry, the legislative had taken the role of the judiciary? Correct. That's wow. exactly right. That's, a That's big why deal. it is a bill of attainder. So this is a separation of powers issue to well, some extent. Well, it is, but remember, to, to, the, to the medieval English mind, there is no separation of powers. So separation of powers is an American oh. doctrine almost exclusively. And whenever you see that referred to, I mean, that's part of the genius of the framers is that the reason they separated these powers was to make sure that no, in their mind, one person in the form of a, of a dictator could, could obtain ultimate power. And so that's why they spread these powers among different, um, among, you know, different organs of government. But to the British... That entire concept would have been entirely foreign. So the bill, I'm sorry, go ahead, Kato. Yeah, go ahead. So the bill of attainer, how did that typically end up for the guy that was being accused? No, well, they either were hung or had their head chopped off normally. <laughs> so it uh, it didn't was, end up well. It for didn't. Them. It didn't go well because essentially what what would happen, and you saw this over and over um, throughout the kind of the Middle Age and, and Renaissance England, was that the king would simply show up to Parliament and say. This person is guilty of a crime. Parliament would hold some kind of a trial. Usually the, the result of that trial was a foregone conclusion. And then the person themselves would be executed. In fact, it happened to Charles at the hands of the Oliver Cromwell Parliament yeah. after well, the English Civil War. But also, sometimes there's no trial at all. Period. Is that where we got the, the, uh, the, the term off with their head? Off with their head? I mean, is that what the king would have said at one of these things? Just plain old off of their head or just... I think it goes back way before that. But anyway, let's tie into this. So we got rid of corruption of the blood or bill of attainder, right? But then after the, after the Civil War, what did we do? We actually brought it back. Yeah, we did, matter of fact. And it was, it was litigated several, several times. I, I, let me ask just a legal question, definite. Ex post facto laws. What does that mean? Ex post facto laws. Those are laws that make something illegal after the actual act has occurred. Um, oh, so post, after fact, after the fact. Correct. Okay. So that'd be the literal translation. And somehow or another, that tied into Bill of Attainders. That's how I, uh, I was reading it off the Heritage Foundation. Mm-hmm. So they would connect those. Yeah. Like, to, yeah. I want to jump in there and let you know that this is a worldwide thing. It's not just... English law. Mm-hmm. In China, they do have something like this. Or oh, in Vietnam, there's a law. It's actually called, I can say it in Vietnamese, which is through Yi Tam Tok. It means the execution of three families. Wow. So if you committed a high crime like treason, they can execute your entire family on your mother's side, your side, and your wife's side. And taken all properties are taken away, period. Do they still do that to this well, day? No, not, not to this day. They ended that maybe technically 1945. Yeah. Well, that was a real feature, uh, if you will, a pretty, a pretty malicious feature of the great purges that were conducted under Stalinist Russia. Was Now, there was no 
there was no particular concept they would just they would just do it but certainly a huge threat of that period of time to of you know to keep someone from from doing something that was perceived to be anti-stalinist would be that it weren't ju- it wasn't just you at risk now, now fred you just brought up something really important that under communism corruption of the blood or sins of the father still applies right certainly well certainly was the case um you know we could debate different different okay aspects of, of communism but it certainly was the case in stalinist russia it certainly was the case during the people's revolution in china yes it was it was certainly the case in vietnam in, in cambodia under yes, the pol pot correct. regime i mean it's it's been a feature of more malicious communist regimes yeah. what, from the beginning what happened if i tell you that it's happening here right now I can give you an example. You have the floor. Yeah, look. This there's a concept called group guilt. White people are guilty of what? Past sins, which is slavery. So there's a group guilt. You are being punished. Yeah, but that kind of flies in the face of John Locke and what when yes. America was set up, it was all about the individual. It's never about necessarily about the group. Is that correct? So this group victimhood mentality is still here and they they are looking for the oppressors who are the re- oppressors the is the institution and who are the inheritance of the institutions that are considered racist white people and they going after political affiliation they going after by race which is white people they going after association if i'm associated with the trump you know uh maca rally i am therefore guilty by association which is sins of the fathers so h- how does this tie into slave reparations i mean are we kind of looking at the same thing here to some extent S- slavery reparations oh reparation it's the same thing it's group guilt i fundamentally disagree with group guilt what go ahead well i mean i think it's to be honest, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that because you certainly have a group of the more aggressive or, or progressive, I guess, in the way they would terminize, um, folks uh, that are in the civil rights um, movement that are uh, basically apportioning general guilt among those who never participated in slavery. But there's a, there's a fair number of... of of black intellectuals that are, have pushed back quite a bit against that. Folks like Glenn, Row- Glenn Rowley, like John McWhorter. I mean, I think that's a, that's a discourse that's occurring at large in the company, in the country, but that doesn't mean it's really just, you know, blacks versus non-blacks. I, I think it's really going, yeah, going on yeah, within I, the black community as I, well. I agree. I'm not saying that all blacks believe in this. I'm just saying there's, there's a tendency for society to blame certain group for something that's happened in the past sins of the father well i'm <clears throat> i'm gonna throw out a theory here but i i see it personally as white elites white elites being guilty of a form of racism all into themselves maybe what they're trying to do is merely a guise for their empathy for their virtue for their false compassion and maybe they think that they're somehow or another able to uh, relinquish pay penance for their guilt by pushing forward with these kind of programs. I, I just see it as misguided virtue. And the reality of it is, 
you know, um, we should be asking people not, we shouldn't be expecting less of people. And that's what uh, slave reparations get you. We should be asking more of people. That is an American way to ask more of people. Right? Yeah. Well, so basically, slavery, the reparation for slavery is considered to me corruption of the blood. Because you're, you're asking an entire group that has no connection directly to slavery to pay up property or, in this case, finance to a group that consider victims. So it's a false narrative of victimhood. Yes. And somebody's looking to reap a monetary gain as a result of it? Bottom line, it goes back to material, you know, or finance. Well, it's interesting because I was actually reading a piece by John McWhorter this morning where he makes tell us about John McWhorter. Similar, you know, he's a he's a fairly well known um, uh, black intellectual. Um, he's been a contributor to several large newspapers over his career, but I think he he is he was just actually talking about a book that he's coming out with that talks about some of these exact issues, and I think it's important to point out that this is not a matter that is entirely agreeable even among the black community. There's a fairly agreed, strong, agreed, yes. you know, it depends on how you, how you poll it and how you ask the question, but what the, you know, kind of what even reparations means, what would that, what would that, what would be the form of that? How would that work vis-a-vis, for example, affirmative action programs that have been in, in effect for, for decades now, and I don't think there's a. I don't think you can fairly say that even a majority of the black community believes in cash reparations. In no, some no, way. I agree. I, I'm not saying that black as a group believe in this. I'm, there's the Larry Elders out there that are speaking up For against sure. reparation. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Owens. Candace. Candace Owens. Owens. She doesn't believe in reparation. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of black conservatives that do not go along with this narrative. So let, let's just be uh, clear on the uh, definition. White privilege refers to any advantage. This is not coming from me. I, I looked this up somewhere. Any advantage, opportunity, benefit, head start, or general protection from negative society mistreatment, which persons deemed white will typically enjoy, but which others will gener- generally not enjoy, these benefits can be material, such as greater opportunity in the labor market or greater net worth due to a history in which whites had the ability to accumulate wealth to a greater extent than persons of color. Social, such as presumptions of competence, creditworthiness, law-abidingness, intelligence, etc., or psychological, such as not having to worry about triggering negative stereotypes, rarely having to feel out rarely having to fill out a place, not having to worry about racial profiling. I think, yeah, and somebody used a lot of brain power in coming up with that definition. That really pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Well, I think it's important to remember, and this is, I think this is one thing that um, is important from all political perspectives, is that it's, it's incredibly important not to see black citizens of the United States is this monolithic group. They're not. Uh, the truth is, is they are like every other group. They have varying perspectives that vary widely and are increasing to vary even more widely. 
And the truth is there are some people who get quite a bit of media coverage um, who have, you know, again, fairly aggressive proponents of some of these proposals. But I, I think we have to be honest with ourselves that a fair part of that is why they get that kind of media coverage, because they're willing to come on television and come on radio and say, and make, and make some pretty, uh, pretty aggressive claims that shouldn't be interpreted to say that they get widespread support among the entirety of that community. I mean, I think that's every bit as, as much, you know, I think that one of the big mistakes that conservatives has historically made is to not see uh, the black community as a community of individuals and therefore people who think for themselves and have a number of different perspectives and, and, uh, and to accord to them the thoughts and beliefs of some of the most aggressive or the folks that receive the most media airplay, I think is a fundamental error. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're dead on right. But the, going back to this, I believe in the individual, the, the individuals are held accountable for the individual's you know, uh, sins. I don't believe in group guilt by any means. I, I, black as a population, they are conservatives, they are liberals, they are people that just, like you and I, they just want to go to work, and they, they don't have the voice to speak up that they disagree with this narrative that America is systemically racist and that all blacks are victims. I don't, I don't believe in that. Well, I think that, you, you know, the U.S. justice system has struggled with this idea of collective guilt all from the very beginning. Because you have several well-known, for example, the Alien and Sedition Acts that were an incredibly John contentious issue right at the very beginning. And then you have the issue of sedition that comes up again around World War I. Uh, and frankly, even more recently, you have the RICO statute, which basically was used very effectively to imprison... Uh, organized crime figures on the theory that they were, in in a lot of cases, implicitly um, contributing or participating in a large-scale conspiracy, even if you could not show that, you know, some of these figures, even at the top of the leadership pyramid, were directly involved in some of the acts that gave rise to the conspiracy. So, that, um, like I said, the issue of collective guilt over a group is one that has kind of bounced around in our judicial system for a long time. Now, I don't disagree fundamentally that that is an extremely dangerous and challenging concept because of what it can be used to do as far as you know, political compliance and political silence and that kind of thing. And we're seeing some of that, frankly, to your point, around this issue of the riot or the so-called insurrection uh, that took place uh, at the Capitol building, where that's being used to label uh, a large number of people who were certainly not interested in taking selfies of themselves in Nancy Pelosi's office. If we're calling that an insurrection, then that's a whole different topic. But, but in, in any case, you know, there were a large number of people who, who simply wanted to mount a political protest and some smaller group of that people who decided to do things that were illegal and therefore that's being used to label the entirety of the group as bad actors. 
And I think that has happened certainly in uh, the Capitol riot situation. That also has happened in major cities with groups like Antifa successfully infiltrating uh, what are perfectly legitimate protests and then using that infiltration tactic to basically uh, launch much more aggressive riots. It's, it's, a, it's a common problem. I yes, think. I agree. I mean, totally agree with you on that point. You, from a psychological standpoint and an emotional one, humans tend to hold people accountable, even though the crime that has been committed was committed of people that have gone or deceased or dead. They want to hold someone related to that oppressor accountable. There's a psychological, emotional need for people to look for someone to punish. Well, there, but there's a problem with the, the oppressor in this whole formulation. And if you go back to the very beginning of the slave transport business, um, the, they were not sold by people in Africa that were from England. They were Africans that were selling other Africans. So do they get placed into the oppressor group as well? I mean, you see where this complicates things? What if you're a you know, poor white, generationally white family that lives in the Appalachian mountain range? How are they going to view uh, people getting getting uh, slave reparations? I mean, see the pressure that that would put on society would be enormous. Well, there's a rule. It's, it's not it... going to solve any problems. It's just going to make them worse. Well, there's a rule when it comes to punishing someone. Either that person has something to give up. If you don't have anything to give up, there's no way you can punish that person. Well, you can always give them the French razor blade. <laughs> well, that's, that's the ultimate punishment. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that when you go back, the, the challenge of this is, the, the truth is, is that the slave trade was an extraordinary collection of bad actors that um, many of whom, if not the majority of whom, as far as the trading aspect, were certainly European. Um, and, and the genesis, depending on where you're talking about geography and timeline, there was certainly, there's certainly no doubt that there were participants who were also African uh, that were necessary to that, to that trade. On both ends, by the way. And well, and, and again, I, I think it's it's one of those things that was a terrible injustice that was visited on people who were forcibly enslaved I, and relocated. But I, I don't think anybody questions that. I, I'm saying let's look at the full spectrum. Let's look at all the players here, and not let's just not uh, focus on some guys with white uh, uh, wigs on that are from England and and uh, nor, um, uh, what am I trying? Scandinavia and America. I'm, I, I mean this. There were people in the uh, the Arabic communities that were doing the exact same thing. This, there's nothing new under the sun. If you go to China right now, you can still find remnants of slavery in China if you look going on with the Uyghurs, for crying well, out loud. Well, slavery is a very complex topic. I mean, we can go on for days with that. But look at the Japanese during World War II. They're collectively being punished for something that's unrelated to them. So that's sins of the father, isn't it? I don't understand your point there. The Japanese internment camp. Oh, oh, I'm sorry about it. on our side. Yeah. No doubt about it. But that was highly politicized. But we still, talked about this before, but 
you know as well as I do that FDR was <clears throat> he was bending to the will of a political movement, a union movement in California, and they just frankly needed the votes and they needed the Japanese out of the picture. My concern is that's history. Korematsu, that was Korematsu case, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. To me, that's history. That's over, and we think that we learn from history. But looks what's happened right now. I mean, you've been censored because of your association or your affiliation to a certain a political party. Well, Fred, I'd be curious to your thoughts on that. Are we are we filtering this down too granularly, too small when we start talking about speech? Well, I don't. I'm not personally comfortable with the fact that you are obligated to simply ignore some, uh, uh, you know, the, the mistreatment that black Americans have suffered that was unique to oh, them. Oh, no, no. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that that topic is, is way complex to Oh, I agree. It's, it's, it's complicated. But I don't and, deny that it was, it was terrible. I mean, slavery, no doubt, was probably the worst things in U.S. history that we can still reflect on it. Still, we have somehow to talk about it, yes. But uh, I'm just saying that within this topic, what's happening now ties into what our topic is, which is the corruption of the blood. Well, and I think there's so that it really a lot of this depends on how you how you kind of construct the argument because whether or not you are, I, I think to my mind philosophically, it really comes down to are you talking about correcting for a past in judgment or injustice that the effects of which linger to the present day, which I, I think and and again there's been a history of this for example. Uh, Germany paying Holocaust survivors um, historical grievances that were that were alleged by the Irish against the British related to their uh, several different campaigns and and uh, con- and conquest of Ireland. Uh, what may come up again with respect to a Scottish desire to leave the United Kingdom because of Brexit and and other kind of perceived past injustices. So. I think that the issue of when you talk about reparations, I personally am sympathetic to a discussion about how what is the appropriate means to to correct the historical the historical justice injustice, not just of slavery, but also Jim Crow, which lasted another hundred plus years after the end of of legal slavery within the United States. I don't know that that's entirely, at least in my mind, uh, correctly defined as a corruption of blood as opposed to a correction of a past injustice. Now, the extent to which, and I think your point is fair in this regard, the extent to which people who never participated in the injustice um, are are required to... uh, to basically bear the the cost of it, and and I think the biggest argument, frankly, in this case, is what it sounds like people like yourself who keep your mouth close to the mic. I'm losing your audio. Okay, people people like yourself who may have immigrated after the period where all those injustices occurred. Um, I mean, I've I've you know had conversations with recent uh, Hispanic immigrants who said, "Look, I wasn't here for all that. So why is this an issue that?" I ought to bear when I didn't receive any any particular advantage. I 
showed up after all that was pretty much was pretty much done. Yeah, but is there no half life on this? Because it seems like it doesn't get any better. It seems like I can, I can remember nineteen sixty eight. I was ten years old, and it does not seem to be getting better. And and since nineteen sixty eight, how many billions, if not trillions, with the Great Society, have we dumped into fixing this problem? We've only made it worse. Uh, fatherhood is still on the decline. Babies out of wedlock is still increasing. Educational, we we spend more per student than almost any other country in the world. Maybe a couple more spends more, but not many. And yet our our test scores, our national standards for testing, they're horrible. They, they're, they're horrible. Well, okay, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in that statement, but let me just say this. I, I I'm think just trying that... to make a general statement that there's been no evolution in the half-life of generationally people feeling guilty ab- about the sins of the father. I don't really think that's true. I think that if you talk to a large number of black intellectuals, I mean, the idea that we are essentially in the same place with respect to to racial issues now that we were in the late 60s, or early 70s, I think that argument is ludicrous. Mm. And I think it's it's dismissed out of hand by a lot of folks who, frankly, aren't looking to profit from the argument. I don't remember hearing reparation are. discussions in 1968. Maybe I was too young. Well, remember, in 1968, you were having discussions about whether black people in the South could vote at all. Well, and yeah, getting active, out of Vietnam. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think there was a whole different idea of the discussions that were occurring in the late 60s, because remember, the the, uh, the Civil Rights Act and, and, and several of the Voting Rights Act had just been adopted. 68 a few years before in that year. So well, anyway, that was a whole different discussion. But I think, look, from my personal perspective, the idea that the situation of of kind of racial integration between the late 60s, early 70s, and now hasn't made any improvement is just ridiculous on its face. Well, well I, I didn't well, go down that road. <laughs> well, let's, let's put it there. Maybe we can do a topic on this uh, yeah. because I think there's a time restraint with the second episode coming up. Yeah, so for sure. What time we got? One so hour. we got almost two. Yeah, you gotta go pick yeah, up great, Junior Fred, Yeah, Fred. Great discussion, well, but I, I think that's a whole different topic. I mean, no, I agree. That's yeah. that's. I mean, you could you could literally have a discussion <laughs> for a number of different thirty minute episodes, yeah, right. just based on that issue. But I think the point the point to uh, you know the guys issue is I, I I think there are very few people in America who would not argue the situation was dramatically better than when the period of the late 60s, early 70s. There are some I'm going to just straight up disagree with that. I'm listening to school administrators right now. I'm listening to them with recorded speeches, all right, going all over the country from our area talking about how bad it is here and the systemic racism that we have here that's gotten worse. I, well, I know the I know the the person you're referring to, and I think in that situation it was, in my personal opinion, a a gross failure of judgment by that person, and furthermore, I think a desire to enhance, make career enhancements by being able to maybe, give but that person is being paid for by taxpayer dollars to go before hundreds of LMPs, like-minded people, and they're passing the spurious theory um, across the country. And we're paying for it. But again, I think we've just kind of come upon another thing that we could spend another yeah. hour on. But let, let me just say, did you have any closing comments that you wanted to make on this, Kato? About corruption of the blood? Yes, please. I mean, it, 
like I said, there's a tendency for human nature to find people accountable for something that that's been done in the past or unrelated to whoever is still alive. Yeah, it fills in McCoy's. <laughs> so it's scary, but it's, I mean, we're still dealing with it. So yeah. I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's, it's human nature that we do hold people accountable. Yeah. Fred, how about yourself? Well, again, this is an issue that, that we've struggled with right from the beginning. I mean, it was an important enough issue to be included specifically in the Constitution. We have had situations where we have had extensive judicial discussions about the extent to which groups can be held accountable uh, without proof of individual actions. And I think that to a certain extent, I think that that is a little bit applicable to some of the issues that that kind of come up in a civil rights context. I'm not quite personally comfortable putting all of it in that basket because mm. I think there are legitimate issues that need to be discussed in that context. What would about, be the top one of those issues? What would be the number one? For me personally, and I don't want to claim any special expertise here, it, it seems to me that you we, we need to address a ongoing and kind of very fundamental disparity. And I think to your point, because I think I know you made this response earlier on, a lot of it is is class-based. A lot of it is based on income and wealth. But there's no doubt that we struggle and continue to struggle with the effects of uh, differing capabilities among the poor and the wealthy. And in the urban context, that is in large means defined by along racial lines. I'm not saying it's entirely defined along racial lines. And the truth be known, there are a number of urban populations that are Hispanic, that are Asian, and that are black that have similar issues uh, that, are, that are driven by, in my opinion, largely poverty. But that's a struggle that, that goes on to what extent uh, we can alleviate some of those problems. To, to what extent is part of that problem is people like to group. And they like a group based on any number of different reasons, maybe financial. You don't see people from South Lake grouping with people that live in the south of Dallas, uh, color, religion, you name it. Uh, I love grouping with cigar and, and bourbon drinkers. That's one of my groups right there. And people that are not part of that, I don't like to group them in it. I mean, so maybe a lot of it is groups, boundaries that we put on ourselves. And whether you're in a poor white or poor black community, you don't have to stay there. I, I understand that there's a lot involved there, but this man that's sitting to your left came across an ocean with not two pennies in his pocket, and he figured it out. All I'm saying is if not, America doesn't do anything else for you, it does give you the possibility to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I think if you're in a family that's not telling you that message, um, I've used this analogy before, one foot on the butt, um, uh, banana pill, one foot in the grave, you know? Well, I so. think that's, look, I think that there's, I, I'm not ascribing to all of those issues are driven by race. I don't yeah. think that's a fair statement either, but I think that there is a, there's not. certainly a feeling about who is getting a fair shake. And to some extent that's probably driven by, I would say a, a misunderstanding 
or or in some cases I would say that people just being told things that aren't true in order for to meet kind of other people's um, uh, enrichment ideas. Incredibly, but, well, but that being said, I mean I think that doesn't mean you can't you you don't have to deal with the problem. I mean sure. you talked about that in in terms of the Italian organized crime that grew out of an Italian immigrant property, you know, community, just like Irish organized crime grew out of Irish immigrant communities. Again, just because there's a malfeasance at work within the community that kind of we need to stick together doesn't mean you don't have to deal with that organized crime problem. Well, that's maybe not such a big problem these days, but did you have one other thing you want to say, Cato? Yeah, I think, I mean, still it's a very complex topic, but culture is very important. I mean, to talk about Europeans that came over, they had ethnic, you know, uh, neighborhoods. Eventually, they became Americans. I think bottom line is, my dad kept telling me this, the faster you assimilate into the mainstream culture, the more you assimilate into the mainstream culture, the better you will be off. Mm. Some culture, it takes longer. Some mm. culture, just overnight. Well, let me let me just close this out by saying I'm really blessed because I've got two really, and I'm excluding myself from this group, two really smart guys that know your stuff. Man, I, I love going to you with your law and your Fred. history background. Yeah, uh, Fred, that's who I'm talking about. And Cato, as always, man, you're a solid wingman for me. I appreciate it. I think we're going to wrap this one up. This is going to be the end of uh, episode 22. What did we decide to call it? 22? Yes. You mean the one today? Yeah. Oh, uh, Sins of the Fathers. Thank you. That's a, that's the end of Sins of the Fathers. Thanks for listening. That's to Sins of the Fathers. Fathers.